0: If you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter two. I'm going to read verses one through twelve. Again, that is Mark chapter two, verses one through twelve. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. Hear now the Word of God to His people. but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, and picked up his bed, and went out before them all. And so they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray to our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is written to your people, written to your people to tell us about you, to tell us about your son, about your spirit, about who you are, Lord. And we pray now that as we look to it, that you would bless us, that you would speak to us through the power of your, of your spirit, to the glory of your son, that you would speak through me, that despite my sin, despite my inability, Lord, that you would come and I would move out of the way and we would hear a, voice, a word from the Lord this morning. We say these things in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Have you ever run into someone and not been able to remember their name? As you talk to them, you're desperately trying to remember exactly who they are, trying to figure out something that would allow you to remember their name. And then maybe they do something that helps you realize who they are. They do a quirk, some kind of mannerism, and it reminds you ...of what their name is, and the whole tone of the conversation changes. It'll either get more relaxed, or it'll get more tense, but you figure out exactly who they are. You're able to address them by name, to give them the proper amount of respect, everything that they need, because you understand who they are now. Likewise, whenever we realize exactly who Jesus is, our whole dynamic towards Him changes... What we will see in our passage today is that since Jesus has shown us his identity, we must submit to his authority. And we submit to Christ's authority by pursuing him at all costs, by applying the truth correctly, and by giving him awestruck praise. Now let's turn to our passage. And first we'll see that we submit by pursuing him at all costs. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 to see our first point. Jesus has just returned to Capernaum after a long period of preaching and working miracles in Galilee. He was so popular now that we're told in Mark 1, uh, 45, that he was unable to go into open cities. People were flocking to see Jesus. Capernaum was the base of operations for Christ during his three years of ministry, and it was where he made his home. It was located on the Sea of Galilee, and the home where he was most likely staying was the house of Peter. We know from Mark 1.29 that he stayed there the last time he was in Capernaum. And so it doesn't take long for people to realize Jesus is home. And so they begin to flock to his house, flock to Peter's house to see Jesus. Mark tells us that there are so many people there that there is no more room in the house. People are spilling out onto the street just so they can hear Jesus preach the word just so they can see him. They just want to be around Christ. What a testimony to the endurance and the patience of Jesus. He must have been tired after long days of traveling and preaching. He is a man like us. He would have been completely exhausted. But he comes home and he preaches. Instead of telling the people to leave, to go home, he preaches the word to them. Let us never grow tired of ministering to God's people, of doing the work of God. Jesus preaches to them and gives them the words of eternal life. But while Jesus is preaching, there are five men that come to see him. And the the four of them are carrying a fifth man. we're told in verse 3 that the fifth man is a paralytic. Now he probably had some form of palsy. And this palsy would have rendered him at least unable to move his legs, if not his arms as well. This man would have been completely helpless. He also... Would have been stigmatized in the Jewish community. Though he would not be looked at as unclean like the leper that Jesus healed previously, they would have thought, the Jewish people would have thought that this man's sin was an immediate consequence, or this man's uh, affliction was an immediate consequence of someone's sin, whether it was his or his parents. We know this because the disciples ask in John chapter 9 about the man born, born blind, who sinned? this man, or his parents, to cause him to be born blind. We also know <clears throat> that the paralytic at least had four good friends. Four friends good enough to, to take him, to pick him up, and take him to Jesus. So we know that they arrive at Jesus' house, and that they can't get in the door. Luke's account of the story tells us that the four men tried to go through the cl- crowd, but with no success. But they wouldn't let that stop them they went to the roof of the house, and they were going to lower their friend down to, to Jesus. Now, during the first century in, in Israel, they had one-story houses, and on the top, the roof of the house was kind of like a deck. It was where they would sit on, they had a flat roof, and they would eat there, they would hang out there, and they would entertain their friends there. The roof would have been made out of big, large wooden beams, and they would have smaller pieces of wood in between them that were covered by a thatch, Of mud and twigs, and they had tile over it. That sounds like a lot, but removing the roof would not have been an impossible task for them. So, in verse 4, we read that's exactly what they do. While Jesus is preaching, they begin to remove the roof of the house, and they lowered their friend down before the Lord. Now, imagine right now if up there someone came down from the ceiling while I was preaching. I think that would cause quite a stir. Especially, I mean, it would cause quite a stir here, but it would cause a great stir in the first century Jerusalem. As someone is lowered down and debris is falling down while Jesus is trying to preach, and this man comes and he lays down before Jesus. But these friends were not the least bit concerned with what the people around them would think. They were just desperate to get this paralytic man in front of Jesus who they knew could, could and would heal him. They had no doubt heard about Jesus casting out many demons and, when he was, and healing the sick the last time he was at Peter's house in Capernaum. They believed that if they could just get this man in front of Jesus, that he would heal him of his afflictions. He would have pity on him. And they were right. When Jesus sees this man, he sees the faith of the men, he tells the paralytic son... Your sins are forgiven. Jesus addresses him with a familial compassion and love, and he pronounces forgiveness for sins. But it is not just for the paralytic that he announces the forgiveness of sins, but for the four men who carried him also. They all exercised their faith in bringing this man to Jesus and putting him in front of Christ. They knew that Jesus could heal him. The way that Jesus uses the word forgiven means that it is an instantaneous result. It's not a delayed reaction. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and immediately from that point forward, for all of eternity, their sins are forgiven. Jesus declares with authority that he is forgiven now. Christ saw the deep need that these men had. Truly, the paralytic had a need to get up and walk. He needed the use of his legs. But Christ saw that he needed to have his sins blotted out. And that's why we pursue Jesus. We know that he is able to see the deep needs of our hearts that we might not even know that we have. We ought not pursue Jesus with the passion and the excitement that we do a crossword puzzle. Eh, if we do it, great. If we don't, that's fine too. No, we are to be running to Jesus. We stop at nothing, to get in front of the one who can heal us of the deepest, needs of our soul. We are to pursue Him like these four men did, throwing aside their care for what the culture around them would think and stopping at nothing to get before Jesus. Pursue Christ with a heart that burns to be in His presence. So when I was a kid, I was very impatient. You know how kids are. We set our minds on things, and we want them right then and right there. I would think about a toy, maybe a video game when I was a youngster, And I would do all of my chores, and I would beg my parents to get it. I would get all the money that I could, and I would would try to get my older brother to take me right then, right there. I was very, very impatient. But I would stop at nothing to get to that store to get that toy. Because I was determined to get what I wanted. Likewise, we are to be determined to pursue Jesus from a heart of faith. We should let nothing stop us from getting to our Lord. From going after our Lord. The men weren't trying to impress Jesus by their actions. It was because of their faith in Christ. Their faith that he could heal their friend. That they stopped at nothing to get to him. And we should be the same. Do not pursue the things of this world more passionately than you pursue Jesus. When you see things distracting you from reading your Bible. Spending time in prayer. Doing these spiritual things with our Lord. Set them aside for a time. And run to the Lord. Too often we're consumed, we're too concerned that we're going to come on strong about Jesus. We'll shout it from the rooftops that we love uh, UNC or uh, the Gamecocks or, or Clemson or our favorite TV shows or maybe a, a movie. But sometimes we get scared that we're going to weird people out about Jesus. We should pursue him and we should bring people to him with a heart that burns for him. Don't you think that these five men became known as the guys who tore open Jesus' roof? Every time people saw them, don't you think, those guys, they're the ones. They ripped open Jesus' roof right in front of everybody. They're crazy. Who cares? We are to pursue Jesus with passion. We are to run to the Savior and cling tightly to the one who can authoritatively tell us, your sins are forgiven. So we submit by pursuing Him at all costs. And secondly, we submit by applying the truth correctly. Please look with me at verses 6 through 11. In the crowd of the, pe- of the people that were watching Jesus, there was a group who were none too keen on, performing, on Him performing these miracles. Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes were there, but Mark focuses on the scribes and their objection. So the scribes were the chief theologians of the people of Israel. They knew the Old Testament backwards, forwards, inside and out, and they were listening to Jesus because they wanted to catch him and, and so they could accuse him of something because they saw him as a threat to their popularity. They understand exactly what Jesus says whenever he looks at the paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven. They ask the question in their, in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? That is a fantastic question. And we must understand that the scribes are correct. No one can forgive sins but God alone. He is the only one who has the authority to do it. They understand that if a mortal man claims to be able to forgive sins in and of himself, that would be blasphemy of the highest degree. That man would be claiming to be God himself. And that claim would have been terrible if it had come out of any other lips but Jesus Christ's. You see... Jesus is both God and man. He is not he is uttering the truth and not blasphemy. The scribes are applying their doctrine, the truth incorrectly. They were saying this in their hearts because they're not motivated by the love of God or for the love of his word. They're motivated by their own malice and hatred towards Christ. Christ was the source of competition for the attention of the people. And they wanted him gone. And later they would use the charge of blasphemy and claiming to to forgive sins for the grounds of his murder. They cared nothing about God. They cared nothing about his word. They knew this truth, but all they wanted was Jesus to be gone. And Jesus knows what's going on with the scribes. And he asks them, why are they reasoning this way in their hearts? Showing them that he has access to the deepest thoughts that they can possibly have. And he confronts them with another question. He wants to know which is easiest to do. If I look at you and I say, your sins are forgiven, or if I say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk to the paralytic. See, Jesus isn't claiming, he's not asking, which, sin, which one is actually easier to do. He's asking, which one is easier to say to the paralytic. Because if Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven, there's no way to prove that. There's no way to look at this man and say, all right, your sins are forgiven. But if he says to him, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, if the paralytic doesn't stand up, you instantly know Jesus is wrong. So Jesus asks the question, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise, take up your bed, and go home? You see, Jesus is going to prove that he is the Son of God. He says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I say to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Now, that Son of Man phrase that Jesus uses, it should teach us two things. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is basically saying, I am the Messiah. I'm God in the flesh. And I'm about to prove it. There's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 that says that the Son of Man will come and sit next to the Ancient of Days. That's the Father. And that he will reign forever. And Jesus is saying, I'm that Son of Man. That's me. I'm the Messiah. See, the scribes would have been aware of Daniel chapter 7. They were diligent studiers of the scripture, and they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. And also, as we noted earlier, there's a connection in the minds of the people between sin and disease. If you're diseased, then you must be a sinner. If you're a sinner, you're eventually going to be stricken with a disease. That's, how the way, that's the way the people thought of it. They believe that disease is a result of sin. And in a certain sense, that is correct. The only reason why people get sick today is because sin has come and it has so broken our world that it affects our health. The human body and mind, they they don't last because of the fall of Adam, which brought death and decay to us all. But Jesus knows that if He heals this man, it's a a clear sign that He has the authority to forgive sins on the earth. That is the purpose of all of Jesus' miracles, to prove, that he is the Son of God. So he heals this man to prove it. Jesus then tells the man to rise, take up his bed, and go home. You see, the scribes knew their doctrine. And in this case, it wasn't terrible doctrine. They were defending the unique right that God has to forgive sins. But they were doing it incorrectly. They had extensive knowledge of the prophets, of the Psalms, of Moses, of all of the Old Testament. And they looked at the one that the Bible was pointing to and they said, what are you doing? You can't forgive sins. How dare you, Jesus? And so Jesus answers back. You see, we can diligently study the word of God. We can go over it and over it and over it. And sometimes we can use it as a stick to beat people with. Just like the scribes and the Pharisees. They thought they understood the Word of God, but they didn't. They looked at the one who wrote the Word of God and told him he was wrong. Sometimes we can nitpick and we can criticize the people around us because we're so wrapped up in our knowledge of the truth. When we do, we are like the scribes and the Pharisees who are incapable of learning from the Son of Man himself. himself. If you ever meet someone who is a know-it-all, you've met someone like the scribes. And the Pharisees. You're talking to them about a topic, no matter what it is, and they have more knowledge about it than you do, or they at least claim they do. They say something, and then they say, or if you're watching a movie, they say, oh, yeah, I watched the extended director's cut. I know more about that than you do. Or something about politics. Oh, yeah, I've met him. We had, we, I shook his hand. I looked right deep into his eyes. We're really close now. You just can't get a word in edgewise, they have to know everything. When you, and then when you genuinely stump them, they get so mad that you can see they turn beet red and they walk off. That's exactly how the scribes work. They're unteachable. And that sometimes we can get that way. We can know everything about something and we can't be teachable. So we should apply God's word to ourselves correctly. It's not a tool to bludgeon our opinions into the minds of others. Don't read about compassion, humility, grace, and forgiveness, and not show those qualities in your life. Yes, the truth must be defended. Yes, there should be accuracy in the, in the things that we say. But we are to be winsome. We are to show the people the love of Christ as we give them the truth. When you speak to the people in your church, in your family, in your workplace, apply the rich truth that flows from Scripture to your speech to them. When you're speaking about Christ to someone that doesn't know Him, Don't just rehearse facts that you know about Jesus. Speak to them about the Savior that you love passionately. Don't don't make the mistake of the scribes and entrench yourself in the teaching of men. Don't use Scripture as a pretext to criticize others, but rather as a tool to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we've seen that we submit by pursuing Christ, we apply the truth correctly, and our last point, we submit by giving him awestruck praise. We see this last point in verse 12. So after Jesus heals the paralytic, after he tells him to rise, take up his bed, and walk, the man does exactly that. He jumps right up, and he walks out in front of God and everybody. He goes out, and everyone sees him. So one thing that is very interesting in the original language, it says the word rise in verse 12 is a passive verb. So there's what that shows. This man didn't just stand up on his own. The man says, Christ says to him, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And remember this, this man's a paralytic. He's never walked a day in his life. He has no idea how to walk. But Jesus says, rise. His legs strengthen, he stands up, and he walks out. It's by the word of Christ himself that this man stands up and is taught instantly how to walk. Christ shows that He has the power to forgive sins. Mark is emphasizing that it is the Word of Christ that strengthens His bones, His joints, His sinews, His muscles, and He stands up and He walks. This is another testimony to Jesus' divinity. Not only can He forgive sins, but He can command people to stand up and walk. See, Jesus isn't praying. He's saying, rise. He's telling Him what to do, and He does it. Mark also says that the man got up And left in the presence of everyone. This is why I said God and everyone. The Lord sees this. It's in front of Christ. And then everyone in the town is standing outside of Jesus' house. And this man walks out. Everyone sees him. It says in verse 12. And they were all amazed and glorified God. Saying, we had never seen anything like this. This man was made whole. Both in his soul and in his body. The people that see this incredible act of God are awestruck, and they glorify Him. They say that they've never seen anything like this. They've never seen people just stand up and walk. They've never seen the Lord speak to people like this. See, Jesus is showing them that the kingdom of God has come near. He's proving the fact that He is the Messiah by doing these miracles. They glorify Him, they glorify God by saying they've never seen anything like this. For 400 years before John the Baptist came on the scene, God had been silent. He hadn't spoken to his people. And then John the Baptist comes and then Jesus comes, just healing people left and right, preaching the word of God. So when these people are seemingly filled with awestruck praise, but it is at best mixed with doubt, and the focus was on the attention of Christ, the only action of Christ, rather than the person. See, the Bible tells us that these people were miracle chasers. We know in Matthew 9, there's a parallel account, and it says that these people were glorifying God for giving such authority to men. They seem to miss the point of what Christ is doing. He's testifying of his own authority, not of man's. In Matthew eleven twenty three 23-24, Jesus says, He pronounces a curse on the city of Capernaum for their unbelief in spite of the mighty works that he had done there. He says that Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented if he had done the great works in those cities that he did in Capernaum. By all accounts, the people of Capernaum were awestruck and beside themselves after seeing this, but they were not convinced of the truth of Jesus' identity. Uh, John Calvin puts it this way. He says, they had not yet grasped the means and the reason for the giving of this authority, for they did not know the link between God's majesty and the flesh. Basically, they did not realize that it was from God. That it was God in the flesh standing before them, healing the people around them of spiritual death and physical ailment. Oftentimes, we can praise the one who acted. We can praise the act without praising the one who acted. We can get so caught up in what God has done that sometimes we forget to actually praise God. We thank God for the benefits of of the things that He gives us, but sometimes we do genuinely forget to thank our Lord and our Maker. Truly, it is not wrong to thank God for the gifts, for the acts, and the mighty things that He does, but we need to remember to praise Him for His character. We need to praise God for the fact that He is holy. Praise God for the fact that He is kind, and loving, and trustworthy. We need to remember those things as well as the good things that God gives us. So if you have ever been or to New York City, then you've seen the Statue of Liberty. If I asked you right now to tell me who made the Statue of Liberty, could you do it? Some of you probably could because a lot of you are smarter than me. But when I was at, at New York, I looked and I thought and I racked my brain. I even read the little things that were on Liberty Island and I could not figure out what his name was. But I looked it up and his name is Frederick Auguste. Bartholdi, who knew. Oftentimes, we look at the Statue of Liberty, we'll praise the Statue of Liberty. It's beautiful. We have no idea who made it. There are times that we praise the acts of God and we forget about the One who made them. We forget about the One who did them. So let us not only praise the acts of God, but give Him genuine praise. As we go through our lives and we see the Lord work, Let us bless the Lord, let us thank the Lord for what he has done, but let us thank him that he is holy and wise and kind and merciful and gracious to us. So this morning as we go out, remember that Christ is the God who has all authority, the authority to look at us and pronounce our sins forgiven, the authority to heal us of our physical ailments, and that we should praise him for who he is and for what he has done. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and for your compassion. Lord, we thank you for all that you do as well, your good and your mighty gifts. Lord, you are a great and a powerful God. Help us this day to go out and to praise you for who you are, to praise you for what you do. Lord, because we thank you. And we thank you for your son and for the cross and for what he has done. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.